welcome to Tabled Fables, a podcast about fairy tales. This month, we're talking about one of the most disturbing tales we've ever discussed. Once Once upon a a time. time. Once upon a time, there was this poor miller who lived with his wife and his daughter. And then one day he was out chopping wood and a stranger stopped him and said, Hey Miller, I'll make you rich if you give me what's behind your mill. And the miller was like, Oh, you silly man, it's only an apple tree, so sure, you can have it. So the miller goes home with the money, and his wife is like, you stupid man, that was the devil. And your daughter, your beautiful daughter, was standing behind the mill at that moment. So a few years go by, and the devil comes to collect the daughter, but the daughter has been praying and, uh, you know, taking all these baths and stuff, so she's too pure for the devil to take her. Um, And the devil gets really angry because he can't take her and tells the miller that you have to chop off your daughter's hands or I'm going to take you instead, and you're not going to like that. So the miller's really scared, and he agrees to chop off his daughter's hands. When the devil comes back again a few years later to get the daughter, he realizes that she's cried so hard onto her her hands that the arms turned into stumps, and then the tears cleansed her and made her pure again, so he couldn't take her. And he gave up, and he went away, and the girl was like, all right, I'm getting out of here because you're all crazy. So she goes wandering into the woods and finds this pear tree and starts eating the pears because she's so hungry. Turns out the tree belongs to a king. And when he notices that someone's been eating his pears, he waits around to see who it is. And he sees the girl and he feels sorry for her. And she's so beautiful. And he decides to make her his wife and gives her these golden hands so she can work and whatever. And she gets pregnant. And then the king has to go off to war. She has the baby and her mother-in-law writes a letter to the king to tell him. But as the servant is delivering the letter, he gets intercepted by the devil, who changes the letter around to say that the baby is a monster. The king reads this, and he's okay with it, and he writes back. And the devil, again, uh, finds the letter and rearranges it so that it says something like, kill my wife and her baby. So back at the castle, the mother-in-law reads this and is scared. So she sends the armless maiden and her baby away. And they're wandering around in the woods, and they're taken in by some angels, and then her hands are restored... And years later, the king returns and finds out what happened. And he felt really bad about it. And then he went looking for his wife in the woods. And he found her. And they got married again. The end. So that was the Brothers Grimm version of The Girl Without Hands. It's also known as The Armless Maiden, Silver Hands, The One-Handed Girl. There's a lot of different names. And wow, I've got to say, that's quite the uh, fairy tale. I'm surprised my parents didn't tell me that one when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can you imagine? I would have had such nightmares if I had heard that when I was a kid. This month, we brought back uh, one of our experts that we spoke to uh, in in a previous podcast. Uh, With Hansel and Gretel. Yes, we're talking with Maria Tatar again, um, and she had some interesting things to say about the key features of this tale type. First of all, there's the, the pact with the devil. And now it's true that in, in some versions of the story, the miller just decides that he wants to marry his daughter. And when she refuses, he chops off her hands. So you could either have the pact with the devil or the father's uh, demand for the hand of his daughter. I mean, that in itself is striking. You know, we talk about asking for somebody's hand and what does the miller do but ask for the hand and when it's refused he he chops it right off uh, and then flight the girl leaves home and uh, and then moves to another another kingdom where again 
she and here the plot almost repeats itself. Uh, she's under siege again. Uh, the devil has has gotten mixed up in her new marriage and turns the king against her. So there's a second death threat, but a final rescue and a happily ever after. So those are some different features that we have in this tale, but it depends on the different version of the tale we're talking about. So of all the ones that you found, Sophie, what was your favorite or, or the most interesting version of this story? Well, I think one interesting version I read was called Penta of the Chopped Off Hands, and it's an Italian version collected by Basile. In this version, you have incest as the motivator for cutting the hands off. Uh, a, a young woman's brother is in love with her and says, Sister, I want to marry you. And she says, You're disgusting. Why do you want to marry me? And he says, Oh, it's because of your beautiful hands. That's why I love you above all other women. So she goes to her room and tells the servant, um, So how about you help me out and cut off my hands? And so the servant does, and she has her hands sent to her brother in a bowl, being like, Well, this is the part of me you love best. Now you can have it. <laughs> brother doesn't react too well, sticks the girl in a chest, has the chest tossed into the ocean, and then she's rescued by a fisherman, and then the fisherman's wife is jealous and throws her back in, and then she's rescued again by uh, a king. And the story goes on, and sort of similar events happen. She ends up getting married and then getting sent away from home and then finally being reunited with her husband and having her hands restored. Stories have a way of just moving around and migrating and shape-shifting, uh, reconfiguring. So, so there are, you know, many different versions about this um, father-daughter conflict, uh, some with the pact with the devil. You could take it back to stories about saints, legends about saints. Uh, there is St. Barbara, who was locked up in a tower by her father, and then was subjected, uh, I think because she put an extra window in her tower, she was then subjected to all kinds of torture and eventually beheaded by her father. So it's a story about deep father-daughter conflict, uh, the threat that can come from a paternal figure. So there's kind of just a huge cauldron of story or an ocean of a stream of story where all of these motifs and plots are reconfiguring themselves. I love that metaphor of it's a cauldron or an ocean of story, so it's hard to tell where it came from. Because even if we can trace stories back to sort of tales of saints, it's really impossible to follow exactly what was going on as it sort of spread across the globe, you know, without a time machine. <laughs> But the story of the scene actually reminded me, Maria Tatar was talking about how um, that this woman put an extra window in her tower and all of a sudden was subjected to all this persecution. And she also mentioned how this is a story of deep father-daughter conflict. And I feel like there's not a story that sums that up better than this Scottish variant called Daughter Doris, in which um, a girl's stepmother accuses her of breaking a milk jug. And in retaliation, her father cuts off her limbs one by one. I mean, in other tales, fathers are motivated by incest, which isn't a great motivation, wanting to marry your daughter, but at least it explains some of the very strong emotions that surround the father's decision to mutilate his own child. And the Grimm's substituted the devil for the father's desire, uh, a wonderful metaphorical substitution. But in some versions, in an Italian version, it's the brother who's asking for the hand of the sister. And when she refuses it, he chops it off. Some versions have um, a girl whose hands and breasts are chopped off. So these parts of the body are mutilated that are 
so valuable for bodily integrity and identity. What I find most interesting about this is how we've got these different villains in each of the stories. We've got the devil, sometimes we've got a brother, sometimes we have a father. And a lot of times there's no real motivation for what they're doing or, I mean, a milk jug. Come on, seriously? Like, that's why you're going to chop off someone's arms and legs and leave them to die in in the woods? Um, Or, you know, there's no real concrete motivations uh, for what they're doing and no real punishment either. Yeah, in a lot of the stories, it it either ends with her forgiving the father or brother or just... It, it ends, we don't find out what happens to mm-hmm. the, the person who cut off her hands. They just are forgotten. Revenge, which becomes such an important part of many fairy tales. And the remarkable thing, you know, you're absolutely right in The Maiden Without Hands, is that the devil, just after <clears throat> three attempts on uh, the girl's life, on trying to get her, he just goes away. And then the father, we, you know, she never goes back home again. Uh, he never expresses any real remorse for, for what he's done, uh, for the pact that he made with the devil. And somehow uh, that element of revenge, which is such a key feature of many tales, is, is missing here. And maybe because... I would venture to guess the redemptive moment is so powerful in this tale, I think, that it sort of wipes out the need for revenge or getting even. And at the end of the stories, it's always the the limbs are restored to the woman and she goes on to live live a life with, you know, the, the husband or the king or whomever. And it's just like, oh, OK, just another Sunday afternoon at the Smith house, you know, know. just chopping like... off limbs and getting <laughs> them back. Here we go. I don't know. I feel like the restoration of the limbs is sort of is sort of more than just a simple hands dusted part of the story, because a lot of times it's something like she's in a pool of water. There's the Swahili version where she's in a pool of water and she drops her child and can't find him. And she's feeling around with her good hand and this snake, who she has helped out earlier and who is now aiding her in, in her wanderings in the woods, says, reach out with your uh, amputated hand. She says, I don't have a hand there. How am I going to feel my child? And she's frantic. He says, reach down anyway. And she does, and she feels him with even though she doesn't have a hand there. And when she lifts him back out of the water, her hand has been restored, and it's this great miracle. And I think that in the scenes of the hand restoration, often it's something beautiful like that. An angel comes and restores her hands, or she washes them in running water and they grow back or something. I feel like it's sort of this miraculous moment. It, you know, it kind of reminds us how important hands are. I've tried to imagine as I'm reading these different versions of the tale um, when, when the woman is without hands and she goes into this garden and she's hungry she hasn't eaten for weeks and she sees this pear tree like in the Grimm's version um and how is she going to get at these pears if she doesn't have hands you know is she going to like peck at it like a bird or yeah just sort of feeding directly with your mouth there's something sort of primal about that yeah yeah and and so there's there's a lot of I mean hands are very important so there's a lot of meaning that goes with handlessness or hand restoration in there I I think one can read it in symbolic terms, yes, because hands are so key to, I always think of the labor of our bodies, the work of our hands, as Hannah Arendt put it. Uh, You know, we use our hands to create culture, uh, to sew. In olden days, once upon a time, women were sewing, cooking, uh, weaving, making tapestries, spinning, doing all of these things. So... Hands are, you know, a vital part of 
uh, identity and also just of survival. Well, the hands, it's interesting because they're not just stuff you do things with, you put your hands together to pray. And in the Grimm's version in particular, prayer and religious motifs are this, this very important aspect. Like, I mean, forgetting the whole devil thing, just think about the scene where the, the father doesn't realize what's in his backyard and he says, oh, um, he makes a he makes a trade with the devil. The devil says, "Just give me what's in your backyard." And the man's like, "Oh, it's just an old apple tree there." But his daughter is standing by the apple tree, and this whole then all of a sudden we've got references to Eden, mm-hmm. Eve standing by the apple tree. But in this case, it's um, it's not Eve being tempted by the devil to eat an apple. It's the father. It's the male figure who the devil has tricked. Also, we've got water as a big issue in here, and tears, and you know, first the the girl can't bathe with water to cleanse herself from the devil in the Grimm's version, um, and then she has her tears, which help cleanses her. And so I'm thinking of holy water, you know, I'm thinking of purification, baptism. Exactly, exactly. All of those references to Catholicism. Right, and it's it's interesting because water is a motif in a lot of other stories that don't use the devil, um, and in stories that aren't aren't necessarily, that aren't from Christian cultures. Uh, so it's interesting that water is a sort of symbol of purity and of I guess, of restoration, even outside of Christianity. And it's interesting because when the Grimm's put this uh, story in their in their book of tales, they uh, preface this by saying, we want these pagan stories to be told for generations and generations, but they, they had to kind of bring it up to a level that most people could understand, so they added all these references to Catholicism in there and references to God in there. Uh, precisely, and... I believe that the Grimm's heard this one version from someone who injected all of these Christian values into the stories. And I think maybe in part they were hoping to create a collection that would be Catholic, as it were, that would appeal to many different tastes and sensibilities. And just as Hansel and Gretel sit down and pray in in their version of the story, uh, the girl prays and, uh, and, and it is a, maybe more palatable because it has those Christian elements to the contemporary audience that the Grimm's were addressing. I like that Maria Tatar um, referenced Hansel and Gretel in there because that just leads me to another point, which is uh, talking about the the fathers in these tales. And I remember when we talked about Hansel and Gretel, we talked about the father and and if he was culpable or you know like how responsible was he for for the, what was happening to his children um, because he was just the absent father and the neglectful father. Um, he let the stepmother do whatever she wanted. That seems to be a theme in a lot of these fairy tales where we've got the absent father. Having a cruel father, a father who is either completely the villain or at least one of the people who was at fault, like he is in the Grimm's version, that's so rare. When fairy tales entered the nursery in the 19th century and women started telling these stories to children, predominantly women, and and I, I think that there was a certain reluctance to, to demonize uh, fathers. And then, uh, you know, I would say also there's something about the monstrosity of female power that has been become fascinating for us. Look at look at the Disney films, at Ursula, at the Wicked Queen and Snow White. And somehow that can be taken to excess. But, you know, where are the Disney films? Uh, I, I can't think of any where you've got cruel fathers, malicious fathers. It's interesting what she said about 
the reason we see mothers as the bad guys is because if you think about sort of so traditional 1950s household, mom takes care of the kids and is the homemaker all day. So if you misbehave, mom's the one who's going to punish you and mom's one who says, you can't do that. You have to eat your vegetables. You have a time out now because you've been misbehaving. And then dad comes home from work and he's the good guy. Yeah, and I've got the same, I mean, I don't have any kids, but my husband comes home and like feeds snacks and and food table scraps to our cat all the time and I have to be the disciplinary one and be like (laughs) no you know like you eat your cat food you know that may be changing I think because or at least in our own own culture where men are taking taking that role on in ways that they had not traditionally been doing yeah a lot of stay-at-home dads now welcome to daddy day One of the reasons why a tale like The Girl Without Hands hasn't remained in our consciousness or hasn't been a tale that we keep on telling is because it's just way too disturbing for children. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's other tales with disturbing parts Mm -hmm. like, okay, so Hansel and Gretel. That one, yeah. They push a witch into an oven. Mm -hmm. They are almost eaten alive. I mean, it's it's horrible. And yet we tell that all the time. No one has a problem. If some people have a problem telling Hansel and Gretel, I haven't heard about it. I've just heard people be perfectly happy to tell that to children. Mm -hmm. This one goes too far, though. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons it does that is because we've got incest. And even in Tales for Children, incest is still a big taboo. Mm -hmm. The Girl Without Hands, I I doubt, will ever go mainstream because of that, uh, the underlying motif of incest in the story. And, And I think that makes us truly uncomfortable. That is... We, we can deal with mothers who love too little, as in Cinderella, and who persecute their children, um, as in the juniper tree. But somehow we can't deal with these fathers from times past who either want to marry their daughters or send their three sons out into the world. That is, paternal cruelty is all over the place in the Grimm's collection. But I think we uh, have sort of tended to push those stories away. I don't know if this will ever come back into vogue, but I think it's definitely worth talking about as adults. And sort of, I think that there is a beauty to it. I'm glad I read the tale. I'm glad I know about the story. But I'm glad I didn't learn about it when I was 10 years old. And it's only, I think, when you start to take a deeper look at the story and see how it's been disseminated. You can find it in Africa. You can find a a version of it in almost any country. And I think we have to kind of push hard at ourselves uh, in our own minds to get us to think, wait a minute, what is this telling us about our culture? And our, our own resistance to to admitting that there could be that kind of cruelty in the world, I think, accounts for the fact that this story has receded from our cultural consciousness. Thank you for listening to us today. Um, and please join us next month when we talk about Jack and the Beanstalk. Got a story for you guys out there. I'm looking forward to Jack. I think that's going to be fun. I I gotta love a story with magic beans. Uh, Anyway, if you want to find out more about the podcast, you can find us online at tabledfables.tumblr.com, and we tweet at tabledfables. If you want to reach us by email, it's tabledfables at gmail.com.